We're going to actually stand and read the scripture. So if you're sitting down, stand up. If you're standing, you can remain standing real quick. Uh, each week, uh, we're in a series called The Sermon on the Mount. And you caught us, if you're new here, in our third part of the Beatitudes. And so here's what we're going to do. I know everyone's kind of settling. That's okay. Uh, as a practice, every single week, we just stand and we read the scriptures together. Uh, you can follow along on the screen. We're going to do this out loud. Follow along with me. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We're going to take a moment and pray before we enter into the teaching of the scriptures. And my encouragement to you and to all of us in this moment is to just slow. We want to slow our thinking, our bodies, our minds, to just pay attention to what the Spirit might want to do. So, Holy Spirit, we invite you into this space. Would you please do the things that you want to do in us and in this moment? Your word says really clearly that even the reading of Scripture, even it going into our ears, entering into our mind, and us processing it, that bears fruit. Even that moment bears fruit. So Jesus, we pray for much fruit to come as we study on the richness of your word and look at the powerful gift you've given us in this passage. We say this for your glory and our good. And everyone said joyfully on this beautiful day, amen, amen. amen. Why don't you grab a seat? You can open your Bible. Keep it in Matthew. We're going to be all around. Uh, my name's Brooke. If you're new here, welcome. I'm one of the pastors here. And we are in, as I said, the third part of our Beatitudes. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. We've been going through three weeks of the Beatitudes. And this is our final teaching on the Beatitudes today. And we land in chapter 5, verses 10 and 12. We're going to be closing out the teaching today on these Beatitudes. And we're specifically going to look how Jesus is explaining persecution, suffering, and how we are to respond to it as believers. But let's be honest just for a second. Even when I got this passage, when Andrew handed me this passage, I was like, bro, that's not cool. Like, basically, like, when people persecute you, have a good attitude, peace. Like, that's about all that, you know, you, you think when you see this. But I really do think uh, to understand what Jesus is trying to teach us today, I think we need some stories to help uh, really help our imaginations understand what Jesus is really talking about, to give us proper context. Because to be honest, in America especially, many of us don't experience this kind of persecution that Jesus is referring to. Uh, many people in America don't have that experience, but many other people in the world actually do. Here's an interesting statistic. At least 75% of all religiously motivated violence and oppression uh, today is still suffered by Christians, just mostly in other countries. Let me give you an example. Uh, this is a study from the International Religious Freedoms Report in 2020. It says this, Christians in Burma, China, India, Iran, Nigeria, North Korea, Pakistan, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Syria, and Vietnam are still persecuted. And these countries are labeled countries of particular concern for Christians. So this is still happening. Jesus' teaching is still relevant. It's still very much a thing. What we would experience in America is what some people might call soft persecution for following Jesus, more discomforts for following him. But as a culture, often we're not experience this, experiencing in America anyway, this violent persecution 
for our faith. So the question becomes for you and for me, how do the teachings of Jesus in particular in this passage inform our life? How can you and I grow in kingdom ethics and specifically the kingdom ethics that Jesus is teaching here to suffer well in persecution when it could look very different? Remember, Jesus said, for in the same way, in this passage we just read, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So what I think would be helpful for us to do is to take a moment and look back in history at some, some of the people who were before us and were actually persecuted to gain a clearer picture of what Jesus is trying to communicate. And for that, I want to tell you about a young girl named Perpetua. Can you say Perpetua? It's your next child's name. You're welcome for that. Perpetua. Now, uh, Perpetua was a Christian woman uh, in the year 203 AD, and she lived with her husband and her son. So just imagine this, this newly married couple. They have a baby. They're living in Carthage, which is modern-day Tunis now. And all of a sudden, they were bombarded with this new reality. Because at this time in North Africa, there was a new Christian community. It was vibrant. It was growing. The move of Jesus or the way of Jesus was reaching North Africa. And it was also no surprise that the emperor of that space, Emperor Septimus, uh, determined at the same time to cripple this thriving, growing group of people because primarily it undermined Roman patriotism. So he started to focus all of his attention on North Africa where Perpetua lived. Now, among the first to be arrested were five specific Christians taking classes to prepare uh, for baptism. And one of these people was Perpetua. She was quickly, at that moment with her friends, thrown into prison, given very little food, but she received permission to actually still feed her nursing malnourished baby. Uh, The day of the hearing arrived, and Perpetua and her friends were marched before the governor. Just get that picture in your mind. It's a cold, dark cell. You're holding a shivering baby, you yourself, malnourished, freezing, not knowing what's about to happen. Guards open the gates, or rather the doors, and say, it is now your time. You are going to now go before the governor, and you are going to have the punishment that is due you, in their opinion. So, Perpetua's friends go in front of the governor first. They were questioned first, and each of them, in turn, admitted to being a Christian. And each in turn refused to make a sacrifice, specifically as a form of emperor worship in that moment. Then the governor turned all of his attention. He fixed his gaze and and turned to question, specifically Perpetua. And at that moment, her father, carrying Perpetua's son, bursts into the room. Just imagine a father knowing that your child's about to die. That kind of desperation in his voice, grabbing her shoulders and saying to her so clearly, perform the sacrifice. Have pity on your baby. Like, don't do this, right? You're pleading with your child to save their life. And the governor, uh, probably wishing to avoid the unpleasantness of executing a mother who was still nursing a child, he added, have pity on your father's gray head. Have pity on your infant son. Just Just offer the sacrifice. Please, just do it. Perpetua simply replied, I will not do it. So the governor asked, are you a Christian? And Perpetua replied, yes, I am. He then condemned Perpetua and her friends to die in a gladiator-style arena. Remember the movie Gladiator? That picture. Have that in your mind. Perpetua and her friends were dressed in these these belted robes and they were ushered in the arena where they were to die. They were put in the center of this arena. Now, in the middle of this arena 
on the, outs- in the middle was, was this group of ladies. But on the outskirts of the arena roamed wild beasts and gladiators. And the stands were filled with people screaming for blood. They just wanted to see it. This was a form of sport for them back then. And they didn't have to wait long because a wild boar charged the group, hit Perpetua. She flies into the air, lands on her back, sits up dazed, disheveled. Almost, you can get the image of the dust around her head and her hair being all over the place. And she sees her friend in need and crawls over to help her friend. And at that moment, they released the leopards. And it wasn't long until most of these Christian women were, were stained with the blood of their friends. And the crowd grew impatient, and they began calling for death. They're like, let's just get it over with. And so they lined them up one by one and slaughtered them by the sword. Now, I know this is a happy Sunday, by the way. Happy Sunday. <laughs> you came to church. Let's, let's go now, right? <laughs> uh, this story is obviously a sobering reality of many who have followed Jesus before. And to be honest, like, we don't have context for this, right? Like, maybe some of you do, but I know I do not have context for this. And I think we have a hard time relating to this story because we just lack that experience that so many have had that have been persecuted for their faith. But even as you hear the story of this young girl, Perpetua, you get a sense that she was almost honored to die for Jesus. Do you get that sense? Like, she was, like, knew what she was doing. She saw no other way. She wasn't about to apostatize. She understood that Jesus' teaching here, that he's he's teaching us in this passage, is that flourishing are those who are persecuted for their faith in Jesus. And I think it's safe to say that there's something here that we don't fully understand at first glance. Maybe we culturally miss it, or maybe it's that our own faith doesn't allow us to sacrifice much for Jesus other than a little bit of discomfort from time to time and maybe an hour and a half on Sunday morning, right? Maybe that's our own issue. But wherever you are at, Perpetua in this story, she understood something that I think we really can learn from. As one author puts it, I love this quote, as we rightly think on suffering for Christ and suffering in general, we realize that through, that though suffering is a cross to bear, it is also a crown to wear. We have to acknowledge that something deep that we don't fully understand and aren't fully in touch with happens when we suffer deeply. And when we do that with the spirit of Jesus, whether that is for persecution's sake or suffering in general, it's almost this weird gift that Jesus is trying to let us in on. Now, this is just one story of a young woman who decided to make her faith more important than her life. And Jesus said, congratulations, because your reward is going to be great in heaven. More more ideas and clarity around that idea of reward in a little bit. But in this beatitude, we see a double blessing. Two different times, Jesus says really clearly, you're blessed. Like, hey, this is a really good thing. Great is your reward. So to help us understand clearly how to become these types of people that Jesus is referring to, how to, to suffer well, I want to look at four things today. What persecution is and isn't. What persecution looks like today in our time. What is the reward that Jesus is talking about here and how to rejoice in suffering? So that's where we're going. I gave it away. There it is. So what persecution is? I think for us to understand this fully, we need to know what Jesus is really talking about when he defines persecution for us. Now, persecution is simply the clash between two irreconcilable value systems. This last beatitude is a description of a Jesus follower, truly. He or she is persecuted because he or she is a certain type of person. 
and because that person behaves in a certain type or manner. But this is a strong warning that this persecution that he's talking about is for righteousness sake. And that's a really important thing to know. The idea warns that Christians who are like unwise or just basically insensitive in their ways, often, you know, when you are, that's, you suffer persecution for being, you know, belligerent. He's not saying that. He's saying, no, no, not for being, it's when you're genuinely righteous. That's what he's talking about. The text doesn't say, for example, blessed are those who are persecuted because of their insensitivity and arrogance towards other people. Right? That's not what it says. It says, blessed are you when you're, when you're actually persecuted. So basically, it's not persecution if you bring it upon yourself. And for the record, it is possible for Christians to persecute other Christians. And we're not going to get into that today, but that is the thing. We see this in church all the time. The persons that are labeled blessed by Jesus represent a counterculture set of values that are typically not welcomed by the world at large. That's what we see. And all the Beatitudes that we've been studying, they demonstrate God's reversal of the world's values and the world's systems. But honestly, I think nothing more, uh, I think this one that we're talking about today specifically highlights that the most. So how can being persecuted, how can we be uh, blessed by being persecuted? Well, the Apostle Peter, he said it this way. If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. If you suffer for doing good and, and endure it, it's commendable before God. So in sum, persecution and the kind that Jesus is referring to is when you are mistreated, you're screamed at, beaten, even put to death for following the lifestyle and the way of Jesus. And this is what Jesus did for us on the cross, the ultimate example of suffering persecution that we might live, enduring it, doing it well. So that's what persecution is. What persecution is not? We also need to understand what persecution is not if we're going to understand the fullness of Jesus' teaching here. Uh, the condition of being despised and rejected and slandered, that's a part of being a Jesus follower. And Jesus says, hey, that's, that's true, that's going to happen. Every believer, every Christian should expect a certain amount or level of opposition. Although you might not experience it all the time, you shouldn't be surprised by it. Now, I just want to say this really quick because it, it gets muddled into this whole conversation. Infringements on your freedoms, on my freedoms, are not the kind of persecution that Jesus is talking about here in this passage. As an example, in this global pandemic, businesses, recreation centers, uh, stadiums, restaurants, daycare centers, offices, and even churches, we were, you guys remember, the last year, anybody remember it? Not really? It was a blur to me too. I feel like I passed out and then woke up. Uh, it's 2021. That's what it feels like, right? We were stopped to ask. Everything stopped. Everything. For some, you loved it. It was an introvert's dream. You've been alone for a year. You've loved every moment of it. You came back to church and you're like, how do I interact with people? Anybody? Anybody else feel that way? Uh, have you guys played the game, what do they look like on the other half of the mask? Have you played that game? Like, I know what your eyes look like, and you try to, like, in your mind, make out the second half of their face. I'm usually wrong. I'm usually, I'm usually wrong with that. It is a fun game. Try it later. Anyway, we were asked to shut down, right? You're asked to, like, stop gathering. And that was, obviously, as a church, that was hard, right? We had to pivot. There was a lot in there with that. But some have come to believe that this was persecution of the church. And where some see this request by government potentially as persecution, the Bible clearly teaches that this was simply a way to love other people who were dying from a virus with no idea of its full effects. Remember, biblical love is to will the good of the other. It's to think, what is the best for that person? And then to do that. That's what Jesus defines love as. He said the greatest commandment is to what? Love God and love other people. 
And so when we do that, we can sum up the, all of the laws. Jesus says, love me, love other people, and you'll be following my way. Now, the church is not persecuted or was not persecuted because it was asked to gather in a different way for a time because of the unknown nature of a new deadly virus, at least in America, right? This isn't true in all countries, but at least here. Now, we might be able to say that it was infringing upon certain constitutional freedoms, right? But that was not persecution. And we need to be clear about that. And it's important for us to note that so we can understand what Jesus means when he says, blessed are you when you're persecuted. Not blessed are you when you're mildly inconvenienced because it didn't work out the way you want it. That's not what he's saying. And we have to understand that because our mind unintentionally, even the culture, when it goes to that, right? Persecution is not being inconvenienced for Jesus. Or it's not when people don't like you. It's specifically when you are treated poorly in a myriad of ways because of your value system in the way of Jesus. So what does this look like today? I know that my question as I was studying this is how does this really play out, right, in America right now? And I'm not going to try to speak out how it happens in different countries. I'm just going to speak where we're at, 2021, Bend, Oregon. I want to speak to what that can look like today, here, and now. Now, the early churches, you remember, experienced persecution in three different ways, which I actually think are still very applicable for us and we see in our time in America. And I'll tell you those three ways now. First, the first way the early church experienced persecution was persecution in the family. Now, this is still very relevant today, right? A child might become saved as parents and siblings would not, right? That happens. I talked to many of you. That's a combination. Some of you follow Jesus. Some of you don't. Or another example, a wife or a husband decide to follow Jesus while the husband or wife decide to not. There's divorce. It's messy. And as a result, some believers in those spaces are, you know, disowned from family. They don't want, like, they become a Jesus follower and they just don't want to have anything to do with them. So that's one way. The second way that we see the show up now, and, and it was in the early church as well, is persecution in your social life. In the early church, if, if you can kind of remember the idea, if you've read the scriptures through, in the early church, they had a lot of social gatherings and celebrations. But these commonly happened at temples. So you can just try to imagine a church space, right? But people would bring meat to be sacrificed, and a portion was for people to eat, but then another portion was to sacrifice to the God of whatever that temple was. So you're hanging out, someone invites you to a party, but you're a Jesus follower, and you're like, oh man, they're like serving the God of like ice or whatever, I don't know. And like, I have to go give like some meat to my friends, but then I gotta worship this God and like offer this, I can't do that, like I'm a Jesus follower, I worship Jesus, right? If you got that invitation, it would read something like, I invite you to dine at the table of Lord Serapis and some name of his God, right? Like it would be a worshiping, it wouldn't just be dinner, it would be like a loaded dinner. It'd be like, this is a very loaded thing. So this would exclude Christians from gatherings. And we see this in our time in, in life, right? There's certain things that we exclude ourselves from as a way to follow Jesus. Thirdly, uh, in the early church and also now, we, saw, we see persecution and saw persecution in work life. Now, much, much of the ancient uh, work life was centered around worshiping the gods. If you were a blacksmith, it was very likely that you were going to be contracted to make idols for other people. What do you do in that situation if you're a Jesus follower, right? Or if you're a mason, can you come work on this temple and this temple specifically worships, worships this God? If you were a Christian, this would affect your conscience. And if you decided to back out or move around, you could experience some sort of persecution, and also, we, would, we can admit, like, if you decide to not go along with the culture of your company, even modern day, if you have a company that has a loose culture around cheating and cutting corners and bribery 
and you decide to say, like, I'm not going to live my life that way, well, that could dock pay promotions, opportunities, right? Like, there's a subtle form of persecution there. So it's easy to see how, obviously, this was going on in the early church, but we experience some of this sort of soft persecution today in America. There's, there's just going to be moments sometimes in our family lives when we experience persecution, Sometimes in your work life, you may experience persecution. There's going to be moments when you have to say no, right? Whether that's to a family meeting, a social gathering, or potentially a work situation, so that you can fully follow the way of Jesus. But that's a struggle sometimes, because we, we have a hard time being rejected, don't we? Sometimes it's really hard to tell people no. Does anyone else feel that? Yeah, I personally don't experience that, but my wife does, so I feel very connected to it, right? Like, she's like, we can't tell them no. I was like, yes, we can. We literally just say it, and then we just follow through. That's all we got to do. She's a much better human than me. That is why I'm in, the, in process, such deep process. Um, but yeah, some of, us have, some of us are okay with saying no, and some of us have a hard time saying no because we like to be being liked. But as Christians, we have to understand that we are going to come in contact with this reality that we're going to have to, in moments, stand up for our faith in Jesus. And what happens, right? What happens in that space? And some people get creative around this idea, no. Like this week, I was asking, this, this really happened this week, asking somebody a question. And instead of that person saying no, this is what they said, that's just not a part of my journey today. <laughs> wait, wait. So is that no? Well, it's just not a part of my journey. Okay, but does that mean no? Are you saying yes or are you saying no? It's just not on my journey today. I don't think, I don't think that's going to happen in my journey today. So you're saying no, right? That really happened, right? Like, see, you, you find these, like, new ways. It is so annoying. It is so obnoxious. I was like, just say no. Jesus says, let your SBS, let your no be no. Just pick one. I don't care. Just pick the one. Moving on. What are these rewards that Jesus is talking about, right? What are these rewards? I don't know about you, but, like, when I read that, you know, there's rewards in heaven. I get like amped. And Andrew gets especially amped because he's super competitive. And he's like, give me those rewards, Jesus. I'm ready, right? Personally, I'm not as competitive as he is. He was going to have a, like, however it all practically works out, right? He's going to have a much nicer space or place or whatever. It's going to be great. That said, there's a reward thing that Jesus actually talks about here. And I know it's interesting because this feels kind of uncomfortable. Like, what are you trying to say? Like, if I'm good here... In the, in, the, in the time to come, in, in the kingdom to come, I'm, I'm going to have, like, rewards? Is that really how it works? Now, I want to be clear. Before we talk about rewards, Jesus is not talking about, just to clear it up, he is not talking about works-based righteousness. And if you're unfamiliar with that idea, it's simply the idea that some believe that the way you get to heaven is by doing as much as possible, being as perfect as possible. Like, that will never get you to heaven. Jesus is really clear about that. We know, in fact, that Life in Jesus starts with faith. You first believe, but genuine faith always leads to genuine works, right? We work not because we earn, try to earn something for Jesus. We work because we love Jesus and want to follow, apart, follow along with his mission. You basically become the type of person Jesus was. Now, back to the rewards. The Bible mentions rewards in heaven multiple times, a few times. But I don't know about you. My question was, why are these rewards necessary? Like, why do we need them? Won't being in heaven with God and his presence be enough? Experiencing him in his glory and the joys of heaven? Like, it's hard for me to actually connect with why do I need extra rewards in heaven? 
And also, uh, since our faith rests in Jesus' goodness instead of our own, right, it seems strange that any works of ours here would actually motivate deeper reward in heaven, but we see it actually does. And one reason that we see it does is because, one reason, excuse me, we see God gives rewards in heaven is in order to fulfill the law that he talks about in Scripture of sowing and reaping. You remember that law, like you sow what you reap or you reap what you sow. Like what we do actually matters and it sows into not only what happens now, but what happens into the life to come, to use biblical language. The rewards we gain in heaven are not like the rewards that we gain here on earth. And I think that's important to clarify because you and I, we think primarily, and if it's not you, I think this way, I think in material terms, right? Like, Jesus, I need that new house, right? So no sound system, new fit, whatever. Like, I want the stuff. And Jesus is like, no, it's not about the stuff. It's not about material reward. These things are only a representation of the true rewards that we're going to get in heaven. And I'll give you an example to hopefully hone in the whole idea that I'm talking about, which is mildly confusing. If a child wins a spelling bee, he gets a trophy, right? And he receives a trophy, but not usually for the the sake of having a trophy, but for what the trophy means. What does that trophy mean? It means he worked hard. It means he was really diligent. He studied. He made sure he knew every word that he needed to and then some. And the trophy is just acknowledging the kind of person he chose to be to receive that reward. Does that make sense? It is his decision of how he was living. Likewise, for you and me, any rewards or honor we gain in heaven will be precious to us because they carry this like deeper weight and meaning of the person you tried and attempted with Jesus' help to be this side of heaven. And more importantly, because it reminds us what he did through us on earth. He uses you. Can I remind you today, like being a person who's present to other people matters and changes lives. Can I just remind you of that important truth? You are here not just for yourself. God puts you in this time belt for a very clear reason. Please live into that, right? And if you're not, like begin to think, Jesus, what did you put me in this time and space to do? I want to be a blessing to others. More on that at another time. The closer that you and I are to God, this side of heaven, right? The more centered we are on him, the more dependent we are, the more desperate we are for his mercy, there's going to be more to celebrate in heaven. That's the idea. We're like characters in this story, right? The story, this big narrative. But like characters in a story, we suffer doubt. We have really hard moments. We make really poor decisions sometimes. We fear. We experience loss. And some of us wonder, are we ever going to like have all of these things completed? Is there ever going to be like an end to this really hard story that you call life right now? And honestly, heaven is the happy ending. And it comes when the desire of your life is fulfilled and it is complete in Jesus. Now, any story, right, is not satisfying without a completion. Nobody's like watching the Lord of the Rings trilogy and stops like, like right in the middle of the second one. is like, I'm satisfied. I feel good about this. Like, I don't need to know the end of the story. It's good. I got half the story. I'm fine. I'm, I promise you I'm not a Lord of the Rings guy, but that just is what popped into my head. So that's what came out. But here's the deal, like, we love when the story's completed. We love when we know what's going on. And simply put, rewards in heaven are the completion of our earthly story. And those rewards in heaven, they're going to be eternally satisfying for us. Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the path of life. Jesus shows us this. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Jesus does this, which leads us to one of the last things I want to cover today, 
is how do we actually do this, right? Jesus is saying, become these types of people in all the Beatitudes, right? How do we actually do this? How do we rejoice in suffering, really? How do we respond to persecution? Well, we're not called to retaliate, right? We're not called to return evil for evil. Like, that's pretty elementary, right? Like, if my kid hits one of my other children, I'm like, hey, you just don't do that. Like, you can't do that. Please don't do that, right? And they do it again, and you're like, really frustrated, and then consequences, the whole thing. And that's not usually where most of us land. The majority of people aren't going to, like, be persecuted and respond violently. Some of you will, but most of you won't. Most of us, though, do fall in the second category of sulking in self-pity over our persecution. We end up feeling bad for ourselves. We're sulking. This is so hard. Or I'm suffering. God, just feel bad for me, right? Like, that can happen. And I'm not trying to mock pain or mock persecution. What I'm saying is that is the tendency. When we're not going to go outward, we go inward. And we end up having a sort of self-pity. But Jesus says this in verse 12 of the passage we're studying. He says this clearly, rejoice and be glad. Be glad can literally be translated leap for joy. And this was what happened throughout biblical history. Uh, December 2019, before the world just decided to change itself. Uh, we, uh, my wife and I were like, okay, we want to do something fun for the kids. We have four kids and two of our, our kids are a little bit older. They're 12 and uh, nine, and then we have two younger ones who are five and three, and we decided the younger ones were not ready for Disneyland, but we're like, the older kids, I think we could like, they've been before, and we're like, I bet you we could surprise them. So we decide, like, let's make this a whole thing. So we drive to Portland because we have family there, and we decide we'll fly out of Portland, and we only could get like a super early flight, like 7 a.m. leaving time, so we're waking up at like 4.30 with kids. It's not fun. If you have kids, don't do that. Like, it's just a very poor choice. It was a poor choice. Just learn from my mistakes. Anyway, so at 4.30, we didn't tell our kids we we're going anywhere. Like, they just knew we we're in Portland. They thought we were on a work trip. They're like, this is fun. Okay, we're here. We start, like, shaking them awake at 4.30, and they're looking. And they're like, what are you doing? Like, what's going on? And we're like, hey, guys, uh, we got to go somewhere. And they're like, what? Where do we have to go? Like, it's 4.30. We're like, just get dressed and, like, grab this bag and come with us. And, like, so we're okay. You know, they're just kind of like disheveled and they're all out of it. And my wife and I are just trying to surprise them, right? So they get in the car to drive to the airport and Scarlett, our, our nine-year-old, she goes, are we going to Disneyland? And I'm like, oh, crap. Like, no, honey, no. We're just, we're just, we have some stuff we got to do. It's real early. Just like be quiet, go to sleep. Like eat this and lay down. Like so it, nothing. Like totally had to lie to her. Anyway, we got to the airport and we told them, we're going to Disneyland. And that is the kind of response that I think Jesus is talking about when it comes to joy. Just like this out-of-the-box experience. They didn't care who was around. They were screaming so violently loud. People were concerned that someone was being hurt. Like, what's going on with those kids? Like, I promise they're happy. This is good noises, I swear. But that is the kind of thing that I think Jesus is saying. It is leaping for joy. While in prison, you remember Paul and Silas, they were praying and they were singing hymns and they rejoiced. Think about that Disneyland image, right? rejoiced in the midst of their suffering. And there's the key to rejoice in suffering, but how do we do it? Let me submit two ways to you. The first, it is a grace from God to suffer well. This beatitude, as with others, begins with blessed. And as we've been talking about through the beatitudes and specifically the Sermon on the Mount, flourishing. You are flourishing. And that's, this beatitude starts with that too. When we're willing to accept persecution specifically for the sake of righteousness, God gives us a divine gift of joy, a grace to assist us to be these types of people. 
And this has been experienced throughout history for Jesus' followers. Think of Stephen. You remember, he's Stephen being full of the Holy Spirit, Acts 7, literally is being stoned to death while he's on his knees worshiping God with the smile on his face going to his death. How does that happen? Sincere divine grace. So we must recognize that it's a gift from God to suffer well, but we also play our part, right? And for the second thing, the second thing I'd like to submit to you is rejoicing in suffering takes discipline. When, when Jesus calls us to rejoice and be glad, these verbs are imperative in the Greek. They're not suggestions, they're commands. It's when you suffer, it's not like, you should probably choose to be happy. It's no, actually as an act of obedience, choose to rejoice and leap for joy when you're criticized and thought of as weird for following the way of Jesus because great is your reward in heaven. And we do this in the same way that we desire to give thanks in everything as 1 Thessalonians 5 talks about. So the question that I want us to ask ourselves is this. If we have the grace to suffer well, and then we, by God's grace, start to take on the discipline of suffering well, what happens in us? What happens when we rejoice in suffering, not just in heaven, but now? What happens in you and I when we do this? I don't know about you, but if you're a person like me, I have a hard time sometimes getting excited about rewards in the life to come. I'm like, Jesus, I have a microwave faith. It's not going to work. Like, I, gotta, I can't wait that long. Like, I need, give me something now. I mean, I want something later, but I need something now. But here's the thing. Romans chapter, three, chapter 5, verse 3, gives us complete clarity on what happens in you and I when we become these types of people that Jesus is talking about. I'm going to read it in the Amplified Version because it gives a little bit more uh, clarity and it describes some of the actual Greek meaning of the words, and I think it gives it a much fuller meaning. So it says this. Moreover, let us also be full of joy now, right in the middle of whatever's going on, let us exult and triumph in our troubles and rejoice, there it is, rejoice in our sufferings. Know that pressure and affliction and hardship produce patient and unswerving endurance. And endurance, which is fortitude, develops maturity of character, which is approved faith and tried integrity. And character of this sort produces the habit of, and I love that, it's a habit, of joyful and confident hope of eternal salvation. Such hope never disappoints. It never deludes or shames us, for God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given, he who has been given to us. Can somebody say yes or amen or like yes? This is, this is like, this is the stuff of, of Jesus. This is what happens to you when you choose to rejoice. You become patient and unswerving in your endurance. What a crazy gift. I don't know about you, but I like need that on the daily. Anybody else? Like endurance and patience. Like I need that every single day. Number two, you have maturity of character. You become the type of person Jesus is talking about. A full, rich person that by their very existence blesses people without even trying. You become that type of person. And thirdly, you have a joyful and confident hope. In Jesus, in the future, in the power of his Holy Spirit, you are not left out. You are brought in. As we reflect on these past three weeks of studying these Beatitudes, I just want to anchor ourselves in one last piece of Scripture that I believe is going to give us a vision of the powerful life that is lived when we truly follow the way of Jesus. 
We can only become these types of people if we truly trust, and that's a very important word, if we truly trust what Jesus is leading us into. We have to trust that Jesus is saying, hey, the way I'm talking right now and the way I'm describing life is different than your life. And the idea is that we take what's in us and what is in our life. We take our finances, our life, our relationships, our, our habits, our hobbies. We take all of that and we just lay that on a piece of paper. And then we, we overlay what Jesus is talking about. We say, Jesus, where these things don't line up, I'm going to get rid of it and I'm going to follow you. This is nothing short of a really big deal in your life. It affects money, relationships, time, energy, all of it. It, it affects everything. But you also gain everything. And for clarity, Jesus is calling us to be these types of people and he'll give you the grace to do it. So as we land, I want us to specifically look at one passage of scripture before we go. And that's Jesus' words in Mark 8. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. He talks about this idea of trust. You have to trust that what Jesus is leading us into or leading you into is actually going to be not only worth it, but you can trust that you will flourish. You'll become the fullest version of yourself. And this is what Mark 8 says. Calling the crowd to join his disciples, Jesus said, anyone who intends to come to me has to let me lead. And I love this modern language. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Don't run from suffering, what we just talked about. Embrace it. Follow me and I will show you how. We hear a lot in our culture about self-help. He addresses it. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way, my way to saving yourself, your true self. What good would it get, what, sorry, what good would it do to get you everything you want and lose you, the real you? What could you ever trade for your soul? Jesus is leading us into a life of flourishing, a beautiful life of flourishing. But the thing about Jesus that I've learned and I know many of you have is he just won't push. There's so many times I wish he would. I'm, there's so many times I'm like, Jesus, would you please just like take over my will and like robotic this whole faith thing, at least for like three or four months so we could get on the right path and like you could just decide all the stuff for me. I'm like down with that, right? I would love that. But Jesus says, no, like he's not gonna push. He's not gonna take your life over. But what he does do is he, he invites. He constantly invites. And often we, we reject that invitation, don't we? But guess what? He like comes back again. He goes, hey, so you ready now? No, okay, like that's okay. And he comes back with no shame, no judgment, which is something would be, that would be impossible for me if someone rejected me. Like, here you go. Like, can, you wanna do it again? Do you wanna try again? And many of us are in that spot. To use the language of revelation, Jesus is standing at the door of our heart and knocking desperately for you to open. And he desires you to open because he knows how good it would be for you and because he loves you more than you even love yourself. And that's the beauty of the gift that Jesus gives us. As we close out the, these specific nine beatitudes, these are not moral commands. Jesus is saying, when you live this way, when you walk in these things, you flourish. And he's inviting us into a richer, deeper way. And so for that today, I'd love us to stand. We're gonna sing in a moment. But as we close, let's stand together. And we're gonna have a moment to just 
pray together, ask ourselves a few questions. And this is a moment between you and God, you and the Spirit. Like, there's no pressure in this space. No pressure to get it right or wrong. It's just simply for you to reflect for a few moments. I'll just walk us through a few things that would be important for us to highlight as we close out. Holy Spirit, would you even come right now and would you just center us on specifically what you are wanting to speak to our hearts? Whether it's a scripture, whether it's an idea, whether it's something that's happened throughout this time of teaching today, would you just highlight whatever it is that you are trying to work into the deeper parts of our life. And friends, I just want to invite you to ask yourself the question and really ask the Spirit, what are you trying to get my attention in? Even in the quiet of your heart. Spirit, what are you trying to get my attention in? The point isn't to have an answer, it's just to listen, to open your mind, to be present to what the Spirit might say. future or your fear of the future. For some of you, maybe you're trying to buy a house and you're like anxious, I can't get in the market, whatever. Like whatever the thing is that is holding you back, taking your distraction, Jesus just wants to gently join you and take that. And Spirit, as we take time now to focus on singing, worship through singing is just a reminder of putting you back in the right place of our life, which is in charge, enthroned, and it's in your proper place. So as we sing, would we put you back in, our, in your proper place? And then secondly, as we take the bread and cup and practice generosity through giving in this moment, would you just stir in us deeper faith in you, an appreciation for the cross, an appreciation for your way of doing it? And Jesus, would we become a church? passionate Jesus followers, of people who love you, would we become a church living the way of Jesus? In